0: All right, well, it looks like we have a lot of people here already, so I'm going to go ahead and just introduce our speaker for today. Um, Dr. Challa, or Mank, as he prefers to be known as, um, is a, a dear friend of, of those of us at GW who've been there for a little while, was a mentor <clears throat> to to myself. Um, and you know, I, I got to to train under him as a resident a fellow and then um, work alongside of him for a short period of time. But he earned his medical degree from Rutgers then came to GW for residency in internal medicine and did two fellowships, one in nephrology, one in critical care, um, and rose to professor at the time he was at GW. Um, he is world-renowned when it comes to acute kidney injury, biomarkers, therapeutics, Um, And, you know, perhaps most well-known for 2014 when he helped design and and lead the pilot ATHOS trial that then led to the ATHOS-3 trial and the FDA approval of angiotensin-2 as a vasopressor. Um, He holds appointments now at the University of California at San Diego and the San Diego VA hospital. Um, he served as chief medical officer for La Jolla Pharmaceuticals and now for Silver Creek Pharmaceuticals and is, is really world well known for his expertise in acute kidney injury and also for um, his ability to give a great talk. So thanks, Mink, for, for joining us today.
1: Sure. My pleasure. I'm happy to see some familiar faces. And let me just dive right in. So some important disclosures, uh, Katrina mentioned a few of them, and um, uh, the one that's probably most relevant is the fact that I was the former chief medical officer for a pharmaceutical company and they developed Angie II and still sell it as far as I can tell. <clears throat> probably not very effectively. So <clears throat> the first two slides are just to remind you and tell you that AKI remains a big deal, but I want to show you it's a big deal outside the ICU. So worldwide, there's some 1 billion cases annually, and, um, you know, if you look at then what the overall incidence is, right, so if you take the, developing, the developed world, which, you know, is Europe, the U.S., Japan, you know, about 2 million cases annually of AKI, and right off the bat, about 15% of those folks die they don't just die with AKI in a large part they do to AKI but even if they survive and they get out of your ICU and somehow manage to get discharged there's still a lot of ongoing damage from the AKI they initially got around 10% end up as dialysis patients um, which is very bad it has a worse outcome than many stage 4 cancers people don't know that about dialysis patients it's not a great way to live and then even if you end up surviving and not being a dialysis patient, a lot of these folks will get CKD stage four and they'll develop a major adverse cardiovascular event. So the knock-on effects to the healthcare system are massive. <clears throat> and We're not going to solve that in this talk, but I just want you to appreciate why this is a recurring and such a big deal. And then i to switch to something a lot more relevant, and it's this. This is the lecture that you've been given for, well, actually, this is the lecture for a guy that's been given for around 40 years maybe 50. And this is the lecture you give to your residents that then give those lectures to the interns that then give those lectures to medical students. And they all say that the way you work up AKI is through these same ways, right? So you're like, okay, you know, it's pre-renal, renal, renal, or post-renal. And then you talk about what those things mean to you. And it's not always the same thing. And then after five to 10 minutes of maybe thoughtful conversation, you decide that the person has acute tubular necrosis and there's nothing you can do about it. And then if it gets bad enough, you call nephrology dialysis, dialysis patient. Right? That's kind of acute kidney injury management in every ICU in the country. Right? It's pre-renal. It's renal. It's post-renal. Uh, what do you think? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Check the meds. Send a bunch of labs maybe give some saline, oh, they have ATN, call nephrology, put in a and dialyze the patient. Now the patient has another organ failure. So, you know, 50 years of this and not much change, you know, you get predictable results, which is the same. So what I want to educate you on is the fact that everything you've been taught about this is mostly wrong. So the first thing is you have all been taught that everyone has ATN because they have decreased blood flow, particularly in sepsis. And when you actually look at the experimental data, that's not true. Patients with sepsis actually don't have decreased blood flow. Not only that, when you actually look at their blood flow from a cardiac output standpoint, or renal blood flow, what you see is a lot of difficulty in knowing whose renal blood flow is what and what their correlating GFR is. So you could have a great cardiac output and have a lousy GFR. You could have a great renal blood flow and have a lousy GFR. You could have a medium cardiac output and a really medium renal blood flow and have a really great GFR. The point here is that in most patients with septic shock, the renal blood flow is in fact not decreased. And the vast majority of experimental data actually showed that the renal blood flow is increased, not decreased. The best example of this <clears throat> is data done by Ronaldo Balomo's group. They took a bunch of sheep <clears throat> and they gave them a continuous infusion of E. coli. And what they showed very beautifully is the renal blood flow goes up, not down. And th- this has actually now been shown in humans as well, but this is the highest granularity data. But this is the most important part. Renal blood flow is increased the creatinine clearance goes down despite a really good blood flow and the fena goes down so increased renal blood flow good cardiac output decreased creatinine clearance decreased fena and then when you actually look at human histopathology data there's no atm okay so i'm going to show you the best data here this is done by the Hotchkiss Group, and what they did is they looked at patients who died, okay, they all died, of septic shock. 12 out of 20 had severe renal dysfunction, meaning they were essentially on dialysis. Now, remember, all these patients are dead, and what they did is they did a ra- rapid autopsy. So they grabbed the patient, they died, they basically have consented the patient's family, so they all achieved profound hypotension coded and died. They run them downstairs into the you know mortuary. They open them and they start biopsying them and taking organs and taking slides. So every patient is dead and has experienced a blood pressure of zero and only one out of 20 has ATM. That's kind of low considering they had no blood pressure. Only one out of 20 has apoptosis. So just because you see little brown casts in the urine doesn't mean they have ATN. Acute tuber necrosis is a histopathologic diagnosis of the kidney tissue itself. The human data does not support ATN at all, in fact. And I think it opens an interesting question is why is there so much dysfunction without disease? Some have suggested this notion of hibernation. But we've gotten a lot smarter and we have a better sense of what this is. And what you're looking up at the top left is a well-perfused kidney. And then what happens is, is that if you then make the kidney ischemic by giving it a bunch of air bubbles temporarily, what happens is is during its recovery phase, you get this vast, vast microcirculatory defect. And when you now do this in a sepsis model, and this is what you're looking at here on the top middle right, this big green kidney, that's a kidney that's been given LPS. So this is shock. So when you give a kidney shock, even if it has good blood flow in cardiac output, what you see is the kidney develops this profound microcirculatory defect. And this is the problem. This is what's causing acute kidney injury. It's not ATN. It's microcirculatory defect. Basically, all the blood is going into the kidney, but it's just going to the wrong places, and you're not able to affect GFR. So the reason this is important is I'm going to try and spend time in this talk telling you what you can actually do about AKI, but I want you guys to just know something really simple and basic. It's not ATN. There are no compelling data to suggest this ATN. And when we actually do kidney biopsies, we don't see the ATN. And no one in your ICU who has acute kidney injury gets a biopsy on a routine basis. It like never happens. So you just have to disabuse your notion of the fact that not only is it not ATN, meaning necrosis, it's not likely apoptosis either. And so microvascular dysfunction appears to be a Huge critical component of acute kidney injury. And um, this is a big issue because there are some things you can do about it, but you can't fix a problem if you don't understand it. So, the other really important disclosure I have is that I hate nihilists. Now, all of you who are in critical care would suggest you're not nihilistic, but there's lots of specialties around you that tend to be nihilistic about critically ill patients. And so they just kind of roll into the ICU, and they're like, I don't know what we can do about it. Should we even dialyze the patient? And I just don't have a lot of time for those people. And what you get a lot of, and this is particularly from the renal community, not always, but frequently. was nothing I can do about AKI. We don't have any therapies. We do everything we're supposed to do already. Nothing works, and all the trials are negative. And I usually respond with something like this. If you don't think you add value when you come into the ICU, don't show up. Because if you don't think you add value, you probably don't. And if all you're going to tell me is follow the guidelines, man, you are going to be replaced soon, and the sooner the better. So I'm going to try and spend the next 30 minutes and leave a lot of time for questions on what you can actually do about AKI that's evidence-based. And if you're lucky, you have interested nephrologists who care about AKI, you're institution. If things are anything like the way they were when I was spending a lot of time in the ICU, I'm still active in treat patients, but I definitely don't spend as much time in the ICU now as I used to. There's a lot of showing up and waiting for an indication for dialysis. And in general, you guys know that. Don't call nephrology until you need dialysis. But there's still a lot of things that you need to be able to do in the meantime. So I will return to this in the summation slide, but this is the things that you can do to make a difference in AKI. The first thing is you have to diagnose it sooner. And we'll talk about the biomarkers that are available and how you might be able to do that. You have to identify reversible causes early. And it's not just, you know, stopping a few medications that look like nephrotoxins. Preventing volume overload is really, really, really important. And I'll show you some data about high in patients and how vasopressor selection is useful. So if you didn't already know this, allow this to be a really important lesson. Serum creatinine sucks. It's late and lousy. And here is the reason why. Your creatinine only goes up when you've lost like 60% of your creatinine clearance. By the time it goes up, you've missed the boat. And remember, you're typically slamming patients, particularly who are inflammatory with fluid. So you're even further undermining your creatinine signal because you're diluting it, because you're increasing the denominator of the fluid of the patient. Creatinine is terrible, and urine output is a really late, late biomarker. So if you want to do something about AKI, you have to diagnose it earlier, even if you don't have drugs, just to find early potential causes. So these are data <clears throat> that uh, I was the co-PI on for for <clears throat> a new kind of biomarker, which is now officially known as nephrocheck, but this is TIMP2 and igf 7 and what this basically shows you, and most of you guys are not nephrogeeks, so you really don't care about all these other AKI biomarkers, but that these two biomarkers outperform all the others. The big problem with this biomarker, frankly, is that it's expensive. And hospitals are very cost-sensitive, and I would say of the people listening to this lecture, one in ten of you will probably have access to the biomarker nephrocheck. So even though it works and it helps you to diagnose AKI earlier, I, I don't think many of you are have access to this, which, which is a pity. But if you see early AKI and if you don't have an early biomarker to help you do it, small changes in creatinine should be taken seriously because it's already a late biomarker. So if a patient looks inflammatory or it's respiratory failure, they're on the vent and their creatinine begins to inch up, do not blow it off. And it's almost certainly not a volume problem, even though that's your sort of reflex. And so in the UK and around Europe, they have um, this concept of stop AKI, which I think is actually a useful mnemonic for very early things. When you see anything which whiffs of AKI, assume it's sepsis. The kidney is a fantastic early detector of inflammation. And It's not just your capillaries get inflamed. Remember, your glomerulus is one giant capillary bed. So as you begin to get inflamed to get capillary leak, this microvascular defect evolves in the kidney as well. You see small changes in creatinine, you know, it doesn't mean you have to smack them with vanxosin, but you need to be worried this person might be developing some element of of sepsis. The toxin list is a lot larger than you think, and I'll show it to you, but you have to be a lot more paranoid about what toxins can cause AKI, and I'll talk a little bit about volume status. So here are the key things. If you have access to an AKI biomarker like NephroCheck, there are a few more that will be available in the coming years. You need to start measuring early because it actually changes outcomes, and I'll show you that data. You need to understand hemodynamics and you need to understand how to use your ultrasound probe. If you're thinking about doing orthostatics in the ICU, you need to reconsider critical care as your selection of your specialty. Okay, You have to be able to get in, take an ultrasound probe, look at the IVC, look at the hepatic vein, really get a sense of objective measures of volume status. You need to get really good with all forms of cardiac output monitoring from bioimpedance, cheetah stuff, all the way through PA catheter, even though it doesn't change outcomes. Believe me, I know, I've heard it. You know, flow track and everything in between. If you cannot understand a patient's cardiac output and volume status, you're not going to impact many critical care diseases effectively. This is standard. Every nephrologist asks you to do it before they show up to see your patient, which is a lot of obstruction. That's always a good thing to do, and it's probably not ever harmful to get renal ultrasounds because sometimes you get faked out and the patient does have obstruction. But the one thing I really want to drive home is the FINA is useless. Now, I know this talk is being recorded. I know it will be shown to lots of people. I'm sure a lot of people tell you to get a FENA, and I'm sure that is something you routinely have on your list. I'm willing to get on a public phone call with anyone and defend this position. The FENA is not helpful in critically ill patients. And the most important reason for why that's true is because the FENA goes down in sepsis when the renal blood flow is normal to increase. This is the major problem with FENA. Every medical student gets taught that low FENA equals pre-renal, which equals saline. And when low FENA equals pre-renal and equals saline, you are essentially waterboarding your patient in the ICU. And you're not getting anything for it because if you're not routinely assessing your volumetrics, cardiac output, and forward flow, all you do is give saline and you increase their CVP and you decrease the perfusion of all your end organs, even though you think you're doing good things for the patient you are actually harming end organ perfusion. So... I'm going to take you through a different differential diagnosis and an approach to how you, I think, can make a difference in your patients with AKI. So the acronym is Moyles GT. If you're Jewish, this will be funny. If you're a Jewish male, you might be a little bit sad. Maybe not. Maybe yes. You can make up your own acronym. I'm not great at acronyms, but this was the first one that came together with the letters on the mnemonic. Katrina, I hope you're not peeing your pants. Okay. So the first one is really important, which is microvascular. Most patients that you're going to take care of, whoever you get the injury, are going to have a microvascular defect. Now, the bad news is there's not a whole lot you can do about it. There's a little bit, but it's usually from sepsis and inflammation. Patients with chronic kidney disease, who have superimposed stuff, they get microvascular defects as well, and theirs is harder to treat. But you have to understand that the microvasculature is really important, and it's actually important for all end organs, but the kidney is the one that tends to have the worst misbehavior by getting dysfunction. You have to deal with the obstruction issue, so that's standard. I mentioned that earlier. You do have to think very aggressively about what nephrotoxins are on board, and it's not just aminoglycosides. There is a vast, vast list of things that cause nephrotoxicity, and a lot of them are drugs you use on a regular basis that you don't appreciate. For example, vancomycin is a nephrotoxin. I know people say and they argue about it. I'm telling you it is. I can defend it. Zosin is a nephrotoxin. And you guys give vancomycin to everybody at the drop of a hat. These are not obvious to people. They don't think to stop the Zosin in a septic patient if they have AKI. But if the AKI is very severe and you're worried that potentially Zosin is involved, that's important. And Vank and Zosin, by the way, are synergistically nephrotoxic. I think the one important that can happen, albeit rarely, is a large vessel injury that can lead to AKI. You have to put it in your differential because it is a potential reversible cause that you can address. I'm going to spend some time talking about syndromes that occur in critically ill patients that can often get missed. And we always talk about how it could be glomerular. It like never is for an ICU patient. I mean, it's exceedingly rare. Think about how many cases of Wegners you guys have diagnosed in your career in the ICU. It's like never. This is easily addressed with the urinalysis and seeing a lot of proteinuria. This almost never happens. There is ATN, and I'm not going to say it never happens, but it very rarely happens, and that's with profound hypotension or with large vessel injury. This is just to give you a short list of very clearly demarcated nephrotoxins. Okay, the list is enormous, and it is things that you don't think about, and you'll notice all the antibiotics on the list. All of them have been demonstrably shown to be nephrotoxic. So if you want to take AKI seriously, you have to be thoughtful about drug selection, antibiotic selection, and getting rid of drugs or changing them out sooner and more thoughtfully in the patient's clinical course. I'll let you guys look this stuff up. I don't have to, you know, kick you with a giant list for you guys to memorize. There's no point in memorizing it. What you want to do is for any patient who has AKI, whether by you see early changes in their nephrocheck or early changes in creatinine or just clinical gestalt, you need to be thinking about what of these medications you must have and if you need to switch out what you can switch out to that achieves the same goal. Okay. The large vessel injury happens and you, this is typically seen in a patient who has really good renal function, is not terribly inflammatory, has something else going on and has an abrupt loss of urine output. This can be from aortic dissection, IVC thrombosis can do this, abdominal compartment syndrome, even though it's not a large vessel injury can behave this way and things that cause severe renal you know, congestion. And these are things you have to think about, because if it's not in your differential diagnosis, it won't occur to you. I think the good news here is this is exceedingly rare. I want to spend a little bit of time on this. There are syndromes that occur in critically ill patients that are difficult to diagnose. You have to be alert for TTP and atypical HUS types of syndromes in critically ill patients. And the only way you will know this is to check the blood smear, and you have to have a low threshold to do this. In a patient with AKI, any significant platelet deficit or thrombocytopenia, and even if it's not below 100, it's just had an acute change from like 200 down to 100, that's a clue. And I think it's a good habit in a patient who isn't obvious in their AKI symptomology to check their blood smear, and you should be doing that on a much more routine basis. Abdominal department syndrome happens a lot more than you think. It should be in your regular practice to routinely check the intra-abdominal blood pressure. And that's one of the recommendations I'll show you in the last slide. Tumor lysis, you'd be surprised how many times a patient can have spontaneous tumor lysis. They didn't even get chemo, and they may not even have a cancer diagnosis. The way you check for this on a regular basis is check a uric acid in the patient who's behaving differentially renal syndrome, you kind of have this notion this only happens in patients who have heart failure, and that's not necessarily true. These are basically patients who have very high CVPs for a variety of reasons and lose perfusion to their end organs. The way you address this is you routinely have to use your ultrasound probe during your physical exam and look at the IVC, look at the liver, and check for congestion. If you think you can do this on physical exam, uh, you're wrong. Um, and it's something you really have to get good at, which is looking at different vessels and getting a sense of CVP. It doesn't always mean you need to put in a central line. Although I do think putting a central line in and checking the CVP is useful. Now, people will say things like, oh, well, CVP is not a good way to guide you for making decisions about cardiac output and giving fluid. I agree. But if the CVP is 18, and you decide you want to give them saline because the fena is low, you're making a mistake, right? Period. There, there's no advantage to that. And not only that, as your CVP goes up, you're diminishing an organ perfusion. Cholesterol embolization, this is pretty uncommon. It still happens. It doesn't only happen to people who are getting an arteriogram. Patients who are freshly anticoagulated can do it. It's something you have to have at least in your differential diagnosis. Otherwise, you will miss it. A think renal syndrome is a syndrome you guys are probably pretty familiar with. This is a little bit easier to diagnose. Um, and there's not great therapies for it, but I think it's important to have it on the list. All right. Glomerular, like I mentioned before, it's really, really, really rare. And if you get Your analysis, you see a lot of proteinuria. It'll point you in the right direction. It's important to have on the list, but it's something that the nephrologists get very excited about because they get excited about this pathophysiology. Like I said, for critically ill patients, I think in my 20 years of being super active in critical care as an attending, I've seen three cases of this being a cause of AKI, which is not a lot. So. This is to show you the impact of early diagnosis of AKI with a biomarker. This was done by Alex Zarbach's group in Münster, Germany. And I'll let you guys pull this paper at your leisure. But what they basically did is they randomized patients to using a biomarker to detect early AKI and doing something about it versus just doing what we think we do all the time and assuming that that is doing everything and everything is fine. And when you do this and you actually randomize patients and you use an early biomarker and detect AKI earlier, they show a difference in outcomes. You can actually decrease all AKI. You can actually decrease severe AKI. This is for cardiac surgery patients in particular. And the primary intervention, by the way, is once they saw early AKI, they rapidly moved to doing things related to treating assessing for sepsis, and making sure that their volume management and forward flow management cardiac output was appropriate. And we say we do this in the ICU, but I can assure you that that that's not the case. And this kind of tell with an early biomarker is really helpful. The other major thing that you can do to improve outcomes is to prevent this. And we all have these patients who we slam with a ton of crystalloid, and they end up becoming the Michelin man. And these patients do very, very, very poorly. So the first thing thou shalt not do is chase oliguria with crystalloid unless you're sure the patient is volume depleted. Do not just give a liter of saline for a low urine output. That's not thoughtful. If you think a patient has AKI and someone says, they look a little dry to me because their heart rate went from 95 to 105, you're wrong. That's just an excuse for you to be lazy. Most of these patients are not dry. They, in fact, have plenty of volume on board, and you end up giving them two to five liters of saline just hoping that's the problem and the urine output's going to get better. When you do that, you harm patients. Fluid is a drug. Treat it like a drug. And if you're not sure, and they have a little bit of a creatinine increase, just do a furosemide stress test. So this is a test we actually developed at GW. Um, Dan Davison, who is now chief of critical care, um, second author on this paper. And what we basically showed is if you do a structured loop diuretic challenge with furosemide, and yes, it needs to be furosemide, not some other loop diuretic, and I'm happy to explain the Q&A why, you give 1 to 1.5 mg per kg. If the patient makes more than 200 cc's of urine, they're not going to progress to severe AKI in the next day or two. But if they fail to make 200 cc's of urine, they are at a very high probability of progressing to stage 3 AKI. So every liter of fluid you give after you know this is a liter you're not getting back. That's a liter of fluid that's going to increase their CVP, decrease their end perfusion, and maybe even give them right hearted right side heart failure. Saline is a drug. And all that edema, they're just not edematous in their interstitial tissue, they're edematous in their end organs. So preventing the Michelin man or Michelin woman is critically important. And this allows you a structured way that's objective to make a decision. Do not chase oliguria with crystalloid. Okay, so I'm going to return to a topic which is uh, important vis-a-vis this microcirculatory defect. So I showed you earlier data with Ronaldo was sheep, and one of the things that he showed in his paper, which was really important, is a lot of the drop in creatinine clearance that occurred was due to intraglomerular hypotension. And when he fixed that intraglomerular hypotension with ANG2, the animals got better. Their creatinine clearance and urine output both improved. And essentially what he demonstrated in that paper is that patients who develop septic shock, or in this case, sheep, get efferent arterial vasodilation, right? These are people who are essentially de- getting an ACE inhibitor from sepsis. And the way you reverse that effect is angiotensin II. And that's what he did in that trial. And then based on some future data that we developed uh, at GW and then worked out um, during our AMG Attention 2 trial, we developed the RAS disturbance hypothesis. And what this basically says is that patients who get severe endothelial injury lose their ACE function because ACE is an endothelial enzyme. When you get endothelial injury, you lose ACE function. Patients with severe shock also develop higher levels of TPP3, and TPP3 is uh, an aminopeptidase that metabolizes angiotensin II. So what happens is there is a group of patients, not all, that end up having insufficient ANG2, and you can diagnose this by looking at the renin levels. So in our ATHOS-3 treatment paper, which was how we got angiotensin II approved, we looked at a subset. This was published in the Blue Journal. And Ronaldo and I worked on this. And we basically showed very nicely that for patients who are in shock, if you have high renin, you get better outcomes with angiotensin II for those patients who don't. So if you have a normal renin that's below the median value, angi-2 does not improve your survival. But if you have high renin and you're 2 deficient, you get a significant survival benefit, and this separation occurs very early. But the thing which is really important is the patients with high renin are patients with AKI, which makes sense because they're the ones who have efferent vasodilation and loss of GFR. So a lot of you are saying, well, I don't have renin available in my ICU. Even though it's a $3 test, that's probably true. It's certainly not on your ISAT, and your lab would probably take four or five days to turn it around. The good news is you don't need to figure – you don't need to measure it to figure out which patients have it. If you look at the median value of the overall population, it was 172. If you look at patients with AKI, with severe AKI, it's almost double that, right? So if you're looking for patients who have high renin, it's your AKI patients. And so if that were true, what you'd expect is when you give those patients – ANG2, they would have better outcomes. And these are patients who all have acute kidney injury on CRT. And when they get angiotensin 2, they similarly have a statistically significant survival benefit. But the part that makes this very compelling is not only do they have a survival benefit, they recover from CRT faster if they get ANG2, if they're in the high renin group. And so what that basically means is there are a few concrete things that you can do to make a big difference in taking care of critical patients with AKI. And I'm going to review this in this final list, and I've intentionally done this to leave a lot of time for questions, because what I definitely do not want to take you through is, you know, 45 minutes of pre-renal, renal, post-renal which is mostly useless, if not completely useless. So the first thing, if you have AKI biomarkers, use them. If you don't, cost, post-COVID, everyone's not, you know, all the hospitals are poor. I get it. You have to be attuned to small changes in serum creatinine and not blow them off. And it doesn't mean you have to overreact to them, but you have to be thinking about, is this a person with early AKI? And if it is, you have to sniff out syndromes and toxins. And that means checking a CVP, checking an intra-abdominal pressure, looking at the blood smear, and if you can, check a serum ramen. The FENA is useless. Now, I'm not saying you're going to stop being able to measure it because every person who doesn't know this is going to ask you if you got it. So if you have to get it, I can deal with that. Just ignore it. Because it's not useful. And I would argue strongly, it tends to lead you in the wrong direction. It tends to lead you to saltwater drownings in a modern ICU. I'm going to give you a clear example of this. You have a patient. You have, let's say, a flow track on them. They have a cardiac output of 2.5. Their lactate is 2. Their CVP is 12. You ultrasound them. Their IVC is Patent, it's open, it's non-compressible, it's not respiphasic. You check a it's low. Would you give that person saline? The answer is you shouldn't. 95% of the time, someone will. And that is now a liter of saline that is now going to just filter out into all the interstitium, filter out into the heart, into the kidney. You know, this notion that it's just the interstitium that swells is madness. Your gut swells, your kidneys swell, your lungs get filled up with fluid. By the way, you know this already, those things are bad. Fluid is a drug. And FINA is a crutch for people who intellectually don't understand what it is or how it works, because it's been mistaught for 40 years in medical school to give saline to people who are drowning in front of you, which I think is frankly criminal. If you're not good at ultrasound, get good at it. During your training, get good at understanding ultrasound, volume metrics, and hemodynamic monitoring. It is the key differentiating between an outstanding intensivist and a bedside intensivist who doesn't understand what's going on. And in patients who have high renin, which you can identify with AKI, there is compelling data that angiotensin 2 gives a statistically significant survival benefit. These data have not been prospectively done yet but the aggregate data is really compelling. And with that, I will stop and I am happy to take questions.